have regrets in my life, many regrets. When I consider my life and I look back over the years that I've lived, I see many failures, I see many weaknesses, but there's more than just that. I remember my sins. Like I can, I can think of specific examples from my youth of, of sin. You know, I don't want to remember them, you know, whether they're things that I thought, whether they're things that I said, whether they're things that I did. If I sit down and I think long enough about my sin, my heart can lead to a, a place of despair and of guilt, and it can be a very dark place and a miserable place. I may look like I'm doing well on the outside. You may say, hey, how's your day going? I'll say, I'm doing well. But in my heart, I might actually be struggling with guilt and thinking about the regrets that I have and the ways that I've sinned in my past. When I think of things in my life, uh, I can think of things that I'm ashamed of, things that I should have done but I didn't do, things that I should not have done that I did do, ways that I failed as a friend. I've talked about this in previous weeks in these Psalms. They bring these things to mind as David is, is cut to the heart with his sins. Ways that I've sinned against friends, the ways that I've failed to be a good neighbor or an employee or a son or a brother, a husband, a father, or the ways that I've failed to be a faithful Christian. Friends, God gave us what we call a conscience. A conscience. And it's this aspect of our consciousness where we examine the things that we have done and determine whether they are right or wrong. Our conscience within our hearts and our minds stands as a judge determining whether or not We have done good things or bad things, determining what things that we have done have been wicked or good, right? And there's times that our conscience can misfire for things that we've done that actually aren't wrong, but they often still do work well as standing as a judge over our lives, convicting us for the things that we have done that actually are wrong. Why are we like this? Why are we like this? Why do we feel guilt? Why do we feel regret? Why do we feel ashamed of the things that we have done that are wrong in the past? Why do we have a category for ethics and morality of good and evil, of right and wrong, of justice and wickedness? These aren't just social fictions that we made up as a random accident of biology or the result of some impersonal evolutionary process throughout the ages. No, we're like this because We were made to be in a relationship with a good, righteous, just God. But we have all fallen short of his glory. And even if we don't know God's law, he has left a witness of his existence. He has left a witness of what is right and wrong in the creation by giving us this thing called a conscience. The conscience doesn't derive from materialism. It derives from our spirits, our soul. A scientist would like to call our psyche. And they're not just a bunch of electrical synapses firing off in our head. We need forgiveness for our sins. We need forgiveness for the things that we have done that are wrong, that we know are wrong that God calls wrong, and yet, even if you didn't believe in God and know his law, that you know are wrong by your conscience. And we can never be happy unless we can have a clean conscience, unless we can be reconciled to our relationship with this good God that we have come to enmity with in our sins. This is what David's writing about in our passage this morning, Psalm 32. Again, turn there. Please listen as I read from Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's holy, infallible, inerrant, without error word. It's sufficient. It's necessary. I trust this is what we need to hear today, what you need to hear now from God's very voice and his word in the Bible. I pray that God would write this passage's eternal truth upon each of our hearts. And here's the big idea of the text. I think that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 puts it better than I could, so I think that that is the big idea of the text. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't know the exact context, again, of Psalm chapter 32. We don't know when in David's life this was written. Many include Psalm 32 and what we would call the penitential psalms or the repentant psalms where David or the psalmist is repenting of sins, begging of God for forgiveness. There's seven of these penitential psalms in total, and I'll read them here. So if you have a pen, you can go ahead and write these down and read through them. These are great aids to us in leading us to repentance of what it looks like to cast ourselves upon God's mercy for forgiveness for our sins. Psalm chapter 6, Psalm chapter 32, where we're at now, Psalm chapter 38, Psalm chapter 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and then Psalm 133, the penitential repentant psalms. In these, David repents. He confesses his sins to God. He throws himself, the psalmist throws himself at God's mercy for forgiveness and look at the superscription of this psalm, Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Right, so we have to remember these are psalms. Uh, and, and David here is the king of Israel, David, King David, and he's the author of this passage. God is carrying David along by the power of his Holy Spirit to give us his very word. This is God's word. He is the capital A author, but he is giving us this word, his word, through this small a author, David. God loves to use means to the highest degree. We see that here even in the giving us, uh, giving to us of his word. And we don't know exactly what a masculine is. It may be a liturgical term. It may be a musical term. Note, there's also one more word in this psalm uh, that I want to deal with here at the front so that it doesn't confuse us later on. But the word, and it occurs three different times there in the text, selah, selah. We don't know exactly what that word means either, but it... Uh, we think that it might have had a musical function, functioning something like a pause in the singing or uh, something like a rest or a fermata. It may have had more of a liturgical function as well, indicating a time for pause to consider the truth that was just previously sung or a time of pause for preparation to consider what will be sung afterward. It may mark out the phrases of a kind of system or a staff break with, that we observe in modern music that's only been invented for the last uh, number of hundred years. We don't know exactly uh, what Selah means. So as we consider this song, Psalm chapter 32, consider how David's need for forgiveness teaches us of our need for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And I have four points to make from the text. Number one, we are deceived if we think that we are good. 
we are deceived if we think that we are good. We'll consider verses 1 through 2 for that. Uh, verses 3 through 4, we'll consider living in self-deceit is miserable. Living in self-deceit is miserable. And we'll consider the next point, number 3, repent of your sins from verses 5 through 7. Repent of your sins. And then the last point, number 4, true happiness is found by being near to the Lord. True happiness is found by being near to the Lord in his favor. We'll consider that from verses 8 through 11. Number one, we are deceived if we think that we are good. Friends, we were made to be happy. We know this, right? This is why when when things go badly or poorly, we're not happy. We know something's wrong. That's one of the moral categories that we have, that something is wrong, and so we're not happy. But we were made, we know that we were made to be happy. We know that something's wrong when we're not happy, when we're not joyful, when we're not content, and when we're not glad. Right? We spend so much of our life pursuing happiness and things that can never satisfy us, but still, deep within our hearts and minds, we know that we were made for something more. We know, uh, we were made to know, rather, and, and enjoy the greatest good that exists in all existence, God. God made us to be happy and to find ultimate happiness in our relationship with Him. He is the source and ground of all good and happiness, and so we were made to find our happiness in Him. Look at verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Right, the Hebrew word there for blessed is asherah, happiness. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's a noun that's describing a state of being. Look at how blessedness is described a little bit later down in verse 11. This is where it's important to have your Bible open to Psalm 32. Look down to verse 11 and see how blessedness is described there. Be glad, happy, right? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. There's a a great semantic overflow of the meaning of these words here. Glad, blessedness, happiness, rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You cannot separate the chief source of human happiness from the ground of what can make us truly glad and what can truly make us rejoice, which is in deliverance from our sins, forgiveness for our sins, reconciliation to the God that we have sinned, against, that we have made ourselves enemies of in our rebellion against him. Blessedness, gladness, rejoicing, and joy are all different ways to describe the same thing. Satisfaction, contentment, and happiness in God. This is a song of repentance, but it's also in many ways a song of joy and happiness that we find in forgiveness for our sins before God. So friends, if we would be happy the happy ones of the Lord, the blessed of the Lord, we have to begin by facing the reality that we are sinners. We are transgressors. We are iniquitous. We are self-deceived. You see all of those words to describe our condition in verses 1 through 2. This is who we are in and of ourselves. This is who we are. We are sinners. We are transgressors. We are iniquitous. Right? We are self-deceived. If, if we would find blessedness, if we would find gladness, if we would find joy in the Lord, we have to face the fact that we are not good, that He is good, that we are not good. We are not like Him. Friends, we can virtue signal all the day long. We can flex our so-called good works for all to see around us. But if we don't have forgiveness with God, there will always be something or someone in this world uh, that would, or it may be our own conscience, that would condemn us. Unless this, uh, the, the word, unless the word of the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who rules over all opinions of men and consciences of all men declares that I am forgiven, then we will always rightly feel that we need forgiveness because we have done things that are wrong. We don't develop a conscience through evolution. We have one because we were made in the image and the likeness of God. So when we are selfish, Even the greatest acts of selflessness that we pursue and the humility that we might pursue is infected with the wickedness and pride of our hearts, even 
when we subconsciously don't even know it. Friends, we, we are not good. We are not good. Often we will respond to the question, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. I'm almost always tempted to say, you know, quoting Jesus, there is none good but God alone. Right? We, we are not good. David puts this plainly a few psalms earlier in Psalm 14. This is the text that the Apostle Paul's quoting in the scripture reading from this morning, Romans 3. There is none who does good. Again, listen to Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, this applies to the most seemingly innocent and sweet child and the most caring and selfless of grandmothers. We are totally depraved. We are wicked in God's sight. We are vile sinners. We have turned against God in our sins. Jesus confirms this again in that phrase that I just said when he confronts the rich young ruler. Right? The rich young ruler says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The Bible confronts us on this point. We are not good. We are not good. No human being is good. This is the point of Jesus' incarnation. The angel told Joseph, Mary shall bear a son. Right? You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the point of Advent. That's the point of Christmas. No one's good. We are all sinners who deserve God's eternal condemnation in hell forever, eternal conscious torment for our sins because we have broken God's laws. We have misrepresented who he is as image bearers. We need a Savior who can forgive us for our sins. We need a Messiah who can cover our sins, who can atone for our sins so that the Lord would not count our iniquity or our guilt against us. And who can wake us up from our self-deception that we are good. Friend, if you're listening to this, beware of the self-deception that you are more good, that you are more loving, that you are more compassionate than God. It's a lie. If you find yourself asking this question, why does God do things in a way that I disagree how can I possibly be more loving and compassionate than God? You need to stop and listen to the words that you're saying. You think that you are better than God at compassion? You think that you are better than God than in, in, in his love? I've heard other people put it this way before. I can't believe in a God who acts like that. A friend, beware of what you authoritatively declare that you cannot believe. If the Bible, if God's self-revelation of who he is and what he is like is not what you say you can or cannot believe, you will face eternal condemnation in hell. You are not God. We don't get to determine who God is and what he does. Only he can. So beware of the self-deception that you or I are better than God. We need forgiveness for our sin of believing lies like this. And thinking like this exposes a great deficiency in our understanding of God's word. This is as simple as it gets. We are bad. God is good. We deserve his eternal punishment in hell for our sins against him, for our badness against his goodness. But God is merciful to forgive bad people. And until we recognize our wickedness, we will never be forgiven for our sins. Until we recognize our wickedness and our badness, we will never 
be happy because we can only experience the true happiness for which we were made if we are reconciled to the good God who forgives the sins of his people and his promised son, Jesus Christ. That leads to the second point. Living in self-deceit is miserable. Living in self-deceit is miserable. I think most of us have an early memory of stealing something or lying about something or doing something that's wrong and we felt guilt for it when we were a kid. When we were really little, my, I remember my sister, uh, she stole a penny from an elderly friend of our family and her conscience just condemned her. Right? She, she just felt restless until she could repent, until she could finally confess of stealing that penny, until she could return that, make restitution, and ask for forgiveness from the person that she stole the penny from. Right? I remember once when I was a kid, I stole an Atari game from someone at school, uh, and I remember my conscience just condemned me to the point that I couldn't stand to even look at this thing that I thought would bring me happiness. And so I gave it back. You know, I had to own up to my sin. Now, most of us have memories like this. We can see something that we like. We think it'll make us happy. We try to justify stealing it or taking it. We try to justify keeping it. But the longer that we hold on to it, the more our conscience loads up, as it were, with more and more condemnation and guilt to the point that we can't stand it. We have to make it right. A seared conscience doesn't function properly like this. But many of us, we know that we've done things that are wrong. We look like we're happy, but we deceive ourselves to think that we're happy. But in our hearts, we're miserable. Losing sleep at night even. We've all done things that we know that we shouldn't have done. And we've all done things that we know that we we, we haven't... We, I'm saying this wrong. We, we haven't done things that we should have done, and we have done things that we shouldn't have done. We do almost everything that we do because we think that it will make us happy, don't we? But if, if you don't have forgiveness for the sins for which our conscience condemns us, we will never be truly happy. And it doesn't do any good to forgive yourself, right? We need a word of forgiveness that's more powerful than our empty words of self-forgiveness. We need a judge that is greater than the judgment of our own hearts to overrule our self-condemnation and our, our deception that we could forgive ourselves. We need someone who is more powerful, who can forgive us, someone more powerful than any human judge, more authoritative to be able to forgive than ourselves, who can overrule our just condemnation that we feel that we deserve for our sins. This is what David faced in verses 3 through 4. Look at it there in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. The King James translation of Proverbs chapter 13 verse 15 says, this is a help, it's helpful, and it's a good thing to memorize. The way of a sinner is hard. The way of a sinner is hard. Living in self-deceit leads only to misery. Why did David's bones waste away at his groaning all day? Why did David feel God's hand was heavy, pressing down heavy upon him? Why was his strength dried up? Why was he fatigued? Why? Look at the beginning of verse 3 again. Because he wouldn't confess his sins. For when I kept silent. When he kept silent, when he embraced the self-deception that everything would be okay. Right? Sure, he messed up, but nobody's perfect. But if I just keep acting good from here forward, I, and doing things that I, I know are good and right, then those sins that I committed in the past... They'll be gone, erased from memory. You know, the good things will outweigh the bad things that I've done. No. No. When we suppress the truth of our sin and of our depravity, the fact of our wickedness and sin, 
by keeping silent and holding back confession, it causes us to rot within our hearts and to despair. It causes weakness, sickness even. We'll never be happy unless God has forgiven us for our sins. Again, science only confirms what the Bible teaches here. We have souls, and if our souls are not at peace and content, happy, we will live miserable lives that lead even to physical illness. Physical illness resulting from the thoughts of your mind and the affections of your heart being fixed on things that are empty and wrong. There are many times when there is no medical, physical, anatomical explanation for the fatigue that somebody may feel physically in their life or even in their immune system. There have been times in my life where I have sinned and my conscience condemned me so fiercely that I was almost throwing up and gagging because I was sick to my stomach. But my bones were wasting away at the thought of my guilt, my iniquity, my transgression, my sin, my self-deception. Right? Trying to suppress the truth of my unrighteousness, uh, in, the truth of, of the depravity of my heart in unrighteousness. Feeling the weight of guilt and condemnation from others or from our own hearts, it can lead to a migraine. It can, it, it can lead to illness. This doesn't mean that all illness is from specific sins that we have committed, but there are times that it is. And that's what David describes here with the metaphor of the power of the heat of the sun in summer. Beware of the deception that leads you to think that you're good and that God won't hold you accountable for your sins. Don't keep silent. Confess your sins to God. This is one of the reasons that God puts us, Christians, in the context of local churches, to help us to not keep silent in confessing our sins to God and to rescue us from the self-deception that leads to misery. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Confess your sins to one another, and to my fellow member in the church, to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God already knows what we need before we pray. Jesus taught us that right before he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer. But he has designed to accomplish his will by answering the prayers of his people. So as we confess our sins to each other, God powerfully works healing of our conscience through the forgiveness of our sins, through not the prayers or anything that we do, but through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we find help for healing first and foremost of our souls, spiritually. But we also find help for healing from physical manifestations that can reside within our physical form because of the weight of the condemnation that we feel in our consciences for our sins. This isn't a mystical, superstitious thought. It's just a reality. Those illnesses that result from spiritual torments of a condemned soul, of a self-deceived soul that's trying to live a lie of one thing and another thing at the same time, can only find relief through facing the truth and confessing that truth of their sin to God. And God puts us in churches to be able to do that as we confess our sins to each other. Much suffering and illness isn't because of particular sins, again, that we have committed, but some is. This was a result of the sin of factions and divisions in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, the Apostle Paul wrote this, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died because of their sin of division when they come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This doesn't mean that if we confess our sins that all of our problems will go away. No. It doesn't mean that we'll experience health, wealth, and prosperity in this life, in this world. No. No. This simply acknowledges that there are physical manifestations, psychosomatic implications of our sins that we find relief for only through the forgiveness that we have 
in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness for our sins through the power of his death and resurrection from the dead. We can put our conscience and our heart at ease. They can relieve much anxiety and stress that can lead to physical manifestations of illness. Why do you think that so many people feel such a burden of guilt and weight to confess upon their deathbed of their sins that they have committed in their lives? Why are we filled with so much regret for the past? Why do people who uh, rise to the height of their, their professions and their job sectors within this world feel a weight of despair even though they have all the power and money that this world can offer? Because living in self-deception about our sin and our need for forgiveness before God's judgment seat only leads to misery. It's better to be poor and to have a cleansed conscience through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the power of the gospel, than to have everything in this world. But the next point is this, repent of your sins. We see this clearly in verses 5 through 7. Misery, suffering, wasting away, despair, depression, and anxiety builds up a great pressure and needs a release valve. In verses 5 through 7, we see that release is God's forgiveness. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. He is silent no more. <laughs> he was trying to suppress the truth of his guilt and his sin in unrighteousness, but now he is silent no more. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, my guilt. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. This is what repentance looks like. Turning from silence about confession and acknowledgement of our sins to the Lord to speaking, acknowledging our, our sins to God. We can't hide our sin from God. He sees. He knows everything. He knows everything that we have done. He knows what you're thinking. David didn't cover his iniquity or his guilt before God. There's no excuse for our sins. There's no justifications for our transgressions. This is a mark of repentance, realizing that we cannot hide. There is no place that we can run to to escape God's sight, His gaze. There's no place that we can hide the guilt of our sins before an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God. We may be able to hide our sin from other people. We may even be able to hide in our sin in our own lives and seek to deceive ourselves about our sin. But we can never trick God. This shows how foolish we are in our sins. We actually think that we can hide from God. This is what it means to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn away from self-deception, to turn away from the lie that we are not accountable to God, to turn away from embracing anything as the ultimate source of our happiness other than God, to turn away from the foolish view that God is any less powerful, any less knowledgeable than He really is turning away from embracing sin to embracing God because he embraces his sinful people in his son, Jesus Christ. Give up. Surrender your heart to God. Acknowledge your sin. And beg of God for forgiveness. Look at the wordplay in the text as well. In verse 5, that word cover. Verse 7, that word hiding. Right, Verse 5, I did not cover my iniquity. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. Unrepentance looks like trying to hide sin from God. Repentance looks like hiding in God from the trouble that comes because of sin. Can you see the difference? God's people repent of their sins. This is what it looks like to hide in God by being exposed and naked before his eyes as we truly are and confessing it. A person who doesn't turn to God hides in their self-deception that they would be good. 
A person who turns to God hides in God by confessing that they aren't good. An unbeliever covers his guilt by suppressing the truth of his sin and depravity and unrighteousness. A believer is covered with God's forgiveness by uncovering his guilt, exposed by the truth of God's perfect righteousness in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that undeserving, wicked, bad, totally depraved sinners like us can find forgiveness for our sins by God. David's confession is coupled by his hope in God's covenant steadfast love there, his kessed love in verse 10. God had promised an offspring that would come to save his people from their sins. He had promised this all the way back to Adam and Eve after their sin in the garden and our sin in them. And God had promised David that this offspring would come through his lineage. Now this is what we meditate upon every Christmas time as we sing hymns, as we meditate on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the promise of a son that God would give his people, a Messiah, a Savior, to deliver them from their sins in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Listen to it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it keeps going. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David, right? The, the author of this Psalm 32, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. From Adam and Eve all the way down to John the Baptist, the hope of forgiveness of sin was fixed on the promise of God's offspring that he would give to Adam and Eve, that he would give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would give to David. Jesus is God incarnate, and he is able to sinlessly bear the sins of his people. He's the fulfillment of the promise of the offspring who would come through all of these covenants in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus' words to the paralytic in the Gospels is so powerful. What does he say to him? He doesn't lead off by healing him of his paralysis. He leads off by saying, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus Christ is very God, true God and true man. He is able to accomplish the forgiveness for our sins that David is longing for in his confession of sin to God here. God revealed to Israel and David in types and shadows what he the, the God whose condemnation they deserved is, uh, they can only find a rescue in the one who would come. Right, Their safety from God's wrath is in God's forgiveness through his Messiah, through his Son. The types and shadows of this truth find their substance in Christ. How can sinners find salvation from the wrath of God that is coming to the God that would condemn them, how, how would they find protection in him through the perfect life of the God-man, his son, Jesus Christ? The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, the justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is our Passover. He is our great covering that we hide in from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. He is the cure to our soul's diseases. Friends, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to God by giving up the fool's errand of hiding in your sins. Repent. Confess your sins openly to God. Beg of God to forgive you through the power of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that any of us can escape the just condemnation of the world, the just condemnation of our sinful flesh, the just condemnation of the devil, and ultimately, the just condemnation in the final judgment of the one true and living God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. 
If we believe in Christ's death and resurrection and we are turning from our sins in repentance and conviction and confession, we can be forgiven for our sins. Our hope is in the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of Him, all of grace. If we are in Jesus Christ by faith, nothing now can condemn us. Not even myself. My heart's not stronger than God. If Jesus has satisfied the condemnation I deserve from God, who am I to say that I am not free, that I am not forgiven? This is the only way that we can escape the just condemnation uh, that, that comes against us if we are hid in Christ. This is how God enables us even then in our life to then kill sin by the power of his forgiveness of us, not by anything that we do, but by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 3 rather, verses 2 through 10. And I'm going to teach from this later tonight. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you, want, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of its creator. We are hid with Christ in God. The only way that we can escape the power of our heart's condemnation, of the accusations of the devil, the condemnation of this world, that seeks to cancel everyone that it disagrees with, is by being covered by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, that He might be our Passover. That He would pass over us, God's judgment would pass over us in His righteous vengeance as He poured out His wrath on Christ on the cross in our place. Friends, we can have a saving interest in the death of Christ. Repent and believe in Him. Repent and find forgiveness. Repent and offer prayer to God while He may be found. The rush of great waters here, it's a metaphor for the troubles that come and suddenly would take our life. You may think that you can wait until you're older to seek forgiveness from God. But friend, if death comes before you expect it, you will not find forgiveness with God. There is coming a day and a time when God will not be found. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, today is the day when God may be found. While you are alive right now, today, while you have life in this world, find forgiveness for your sins from God through Jesus Christ today, now, while you have breath and while you are alive. While there's life, there's an opportunity to repent. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 warns us, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't be, friends, like the rich man. right? The rich man who Jesus taught went to Hades only to face eternal torments in hell. He begged Abraham to send poor man Lazarus to his five brothers, right, to warn them that they would repent and be forgiven while they were alive. And Abraham responded in this way, as Jesus teaches, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will, uh, neither will they be convinced if, they, uh, if someone should rise from the dead. God can be found today while we have life, through his word in the Bible. The question is, will we listen to it? Will we heed it? Only repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Flee God's coming wrath. 
through faith in, in Jesus Christ alone. Find forgiveness for your sins in Christ alone. There is coming a time when sinners will reach out for God, but he will not be found. Don't be like the virgins who failed to bring enough oil and to trim their wicks, only to be shut out of the happiness and the blessedness of God's eternal kingdom. Instead, be surrounded by the great waters, instead of being surrounded by the great waters of God's eternal wrath and judgment after death, if we are not forgiven in Christ, be surrounded with God's great shouts of deliverance through Jesus Christ. God's shout of deliverance in his word become flesh, Jesus Christ. This is the word that is above all earthly powers. He is the final word over life and death. Christ is the word who has supremacy and authority to pronounce forgiveness that silences all of the accusations that could come against us. Jesus is the shout of God's deliverance in his words, It is finished. As he cried out on the cross. Jesus is God's shout of deliverance that satisfied our just condemnation that we deserve for our sins. And he is the shout of deliverance, the word of God that can assure us of forgiveness, assurance of his love, assurance of his grace, of his mercy. Christ is the shout of God that is able to silence all the accusations of condemnation. He is able to satisfy God's wrath for our sins. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the last point is this. True happiness is found by being near to the Lord. This is a psalm about David finding God's forgiveness for his sins. But in verse 8, he turns and he exhorts everyone who would ever hear this song read or sing this song themselves. Look at it, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Friends, this is God's word through David as a prophet to you and to me. To each one of us, if you're listening. What instruction are you listening to in your life? The songs that we listen to the rest of the week, the television shows that we watch, what are they teaching us? What are they what are we listening to with our life? What is the word that could give us hope in the midst of this life? The only word that can give us hope in peace of conscience is that Yahweh forgives. The one true and living God, the great I am, forgives. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can we walk in this world and find true happiness that can never fail? How can we be truly blessed? How can we be truly glad? How can we be truly joyful? If we listen to the counsel of God, that David is speaking to all of those that would hear, by listening to the Bible, reading the Bible, considering what the Bible teaches, God's Word. We were made to know and be known by God. We were made to know and acknowledge God as the greatest good in all existence, and then to turn and warn other sinners and encourage them to see that God is the greatest good in all existence for which they were made and for which they need forgiveness if they would be acceptable in His sight through the blood of His Son. We were made to find our satisfaction and our joy in a relationship with the one and true, eternal, living God. And the metaphor in verse 9 is helpful. Look at it there. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding that has to be curved with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near you, right? Turn to God. Stay near to God through His grace in Christ. True happiness is found by being near to the Lord through a mediator. If we do not have a mediator, if we do not have a high priest who is the atonement for our sins, who can bring us acceptably before God's throne, then true misery and torment is found by being near to the Lord. But if we have Christ, the happiness that we find ever fleeting in this life is far surpassed whatever expectations of sadness we have. This is what we pray when we sing the hymn, Nearer my God to Thee, Nearer my God to Thee, Nearer to Thee, Even though it be a cross that raiseth me, Still all my songs shall be 
nearer, my God, to thee. Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer to thee. This is the cry of God's people. Moses, show me your glory, right? The hope of Christians that we will behold him, know him even as we now are fully known when he comes to take us to himself. Why do we find happiness in the nearness of God? Because we know that we can only be happy if we are reconciled to him through Christ. Again, this is what we were made for, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made to make much of the Lord. We were made to find happiness in God, in our relationship with Him. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, we are too easily pleased by the empty pleasures the fleeting happinesses of this world. The blessedness and happiness that we were made for that will never fade away is to be accepted into God's presence through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'll close with verses 10 through 11. Look at them there. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. Though we face suffering, though we face sorrow, though we face disappointment in this world, we can have a gladness and a joy that this world could never touch. If we are reconciled to God through Christ, God declares us righteous through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the alien righteousness that is applied to us that we don't have within ourselves. We are covered by his perfections, and God the Father then looks at us as his beloved Son because we are clothed in the Son. This is the principal way that Christians are referred to in the New Testament. They are, they are in Christ. The Father adopts us as sons in his one and only Son. Friend, if you're listening, repent of your sins. Find the happiness that you were made for in the hope of eternal life. Reconciliation to God in his kingdom. We are deceived if we think that we are good. Living in self-deceit is miserable. Repent of your sins. True happiness is found by being near to the Lord through his provision of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we could be forgiven for our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to find joy in acknowledging our sin to you, even as we weep over the sins and the offenses that we have committed against you. We pray that you would help us to find joy to confess to you because you are a God who forgives through the gift of your son and we pray that you would save those that are listening even today that are not in Christ we pray that you would give them a saving knowledge of the death and resurrection of your son it's in Jesus name that we pray amen